Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start with some small town politics and what they say about an issue that most New England towns battle over, zoning. See, Vermont-based solid waste company Casella says it's running out of space for northern New England's trash, so it's taking the rare step of planning a brand new landfill in the rural northern New Hampshire town of Dalton. Lots of locals agree they don't want the landfill, but as NHPR's Annie Ropeek reports, they're divided on whether to use zoning to block that plan. The signs of conflict are obvious as soon as you hit the outskirts of Dalton. Literally lawn signs at house after house. Some say, save Dalton, no zoning. One pro-zoning sign says, vote yes, no landfill. It's been spray-painted over in dripping purple letters with the word lie. Things usually don't get this heated about any certain issue up here. Stephen Pelletier Jr. manages the country store in this town of fewer than 1,000 residents. People can usually like live and debate pretty passively. But for whatever reason, this has been a little more of a fiery one. Dalton, like about 20 other New Hampshire towns, has never had a formal zoning ordinance. And some like it that way. Stephen Pelletier has anti-zoning signs outside a store, but that doesn't mean he's a fan of the proposed dump. Nobody really wants the landfill, but the reality of it is really what zoning is going to be is a little bit more leverage, but it's not going to officially stop them. But supporters say zoning is the town's best chance to reject the landfill, which they worry will pollute their water, depress their property values, and drive away tourists. Last week, hundreds of Dalton residents packed into the muggy municipal gym to vote on adopting a temporary zoning ordinance. It uses basic boilerplate language from state statute, making the whole town an agricultural residential district. It would create a local zoning board of appeals to approve any major new construction projects that don't fit with that use. Dalton would have until town meeting in 2021 to decide whether and how to put permanent zoning on the books. We are voting on emergency... In the weeks before the vote, Casella, the landfill developer, sent out mailers and backed social media campaigns that many saw as anti-zoning. And locals like Jacques Renault came to the meeting primed for debate. I think it's the character of the town not to have zoning. He and others worry zoning means government infringement and higher costs for local businesses. Zoning supporters say the change would give people in Dalton a voice. John Swan is leading the opposition to the dump. The zoning plan was his idea. This gives us a chance. It empowers you, the citizens of this town, with the opportunity, a chance, a fighting chance to stop this. At Swan's three-minute time limit, town moderator Christine Ordinetz tried to cut him off. Three minutes, sir. Thank you. Oh, come on. So basically... Quiet down. Vote no. Hey, stop it. John, please be seated. John, be seated. Jacques Renault, the zoning opponent, was glaring at Swan, and Swan glared back. A nearby police officer took a step forward. Swan sat back down. Let's be civil to one another. Thank you, sir. 
In the end, Dalton voted to approve the temporary zoning ordinance. It wasn't even that close, 154 to 129 votes. And John Swan says it's only part of his anti-landfill strategy. Ultimately, this is just the first battle in the war. Among other next steps, he says he's setting up monitoring of local water supplies to get a baseline of data in case the landfill comes to pass and causes contamination. That's what a federal lawsuit alleges is happening in neighboring Bethlehem. A nonprofit says they found contamination from Casella's existing landfill there in the Amanusik River. The Vermont-based company did not respond to interview requests for this story, but they have their own worries about their Bethlehem landfill. They've previously said that it'll be full by 2024, and voters in Bethlehem have twice rejected plans for expansion. This is what brought Casella to Dalton. The proposed landfill still faces years of state permitting. But in a statement after the zoning vote, a spokesman said the new temporary ordinance will not preclude them from pursuing it. The site Casella wants to use is inside a big forested piece of land, about 1,900 acres, already home to a gravel pit and directly adjacent to Forest Lake State Park. Tonight, the lake is awash in sunset colors, surrounded by trees and distant mountains. Kids are swimming, and families like Christy Grimard and Megan Webster's are barbecuing. They grew up together in Dalton and say protecting this park feels like as much a cornerstone of local culture as the lack of zoning seems to be. Why do you think it's such an emotional issue for folks around here? Probably because everybody's grown up here. Like, they don't want change. There's nothing here for us. This is what we have. Don't take it away. (laughs) They say they know the region's trash will have to go somewhere. They just don't want it here. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. The last few years saw another political battle tied to the Massachusetts law that would create casino gambling in the state. Over many objections, the city of Springfield won the right to build a downtown casino in a spot where businesses had largely been hollowed out. One year ago, MGM Springfield opened, and the city's mayor, Dominic Sarno, said he was proud and honored to have MGM in town. They have spread their wealth to all our vendors, materials, supplies, and businesses, whether buying from them or incorporating them here in MGM. They have invested their time and belief here in the city of Springfield. As the casino was under construction, several local retailers and restaurants said they got a lot of new business, but now... Not so much. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen reports. Today is Jason and Lori Check's third visit to the casino from their home in Sturbridge. We wouldn't come to Springfield really anything else other than the casino. Jason says so far they've eaten mostly inside the casino. they got a couple good restaurants in there that have good food in, in there. So there's a steak place which is really expensive in there that we <laughs> won't eat at. But they have tried to eat at a pizzeria next to the casino, including today. Red Rose, yeah, we yeah we tried to come we tried to come a couple times, but they were either closed or it was Monday and they were closed. So uh, of course today now they're closed again on vacation. When the casino first opened, a couple of shops opened up in the block opposite the casino on Main Street, selling gifts and high-end women's clothing. But now those storefronts stand empty. Just up the street, at Sun Kim Bop, a nearby restaurant, like many neighborhood venues, owner Sun Kim says she got a lot of business before the casino opened from construction workers. Now, not many people come, but still some executives and some people still come. 
like casino customers looking for her Korean food. Especially Asians looking for something different kind of food, look for us, Google and uh, Yelp, and then come to us. A short walk south towards the casino inside Mike's Beauty Supply, it's quiet. The owner, Michael Kang, is sewing a display wig. He says the casino hasn't brought him any new business. Literally, other than bringing like, uh, you know, homeless people for panhandling, it really doesn't do anything for our business here on Main Street that much. Down the block, Edouard Moyette is wearing a Chicago Cubs hat behind the counter at C to Z, a convenience store and smoke shop. He's noticed the same thing as Kang. Now the people from the bus terminal that were over there asking for money, they're all over here now. And that scares a lot of people. So that's why they don't go in the store. They're like, you know what, just, let's just stay in the casino. Even though, according to Moyette, cigarettes are about five bucks cheaper in the store. He says his customers are the same as before the casino's construction, mostly people from the courthouse, a bank, and lawyer's offices. The casino didn't do no impact for us. No new customers, the same people. Anything else? In the south end, a five-minute walk from the casino, lunch business is brisk at Frigo's, an Italian deli. Outside at a table, brothers Michael and Adam Pruser from the Albany area are eating a pre-gambling lunch. Turkey sub, lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise. Yep, turkey, lettuce, tomato, onion, mayo. This is Adam's fifth or sixth visit to the casino. This is actually the first time I visited a business outside. It was actually his idea. He's the Googler. Frigo's owner, Joe Frigo, says he doesn't see a lot of patrons from MGM. If you're in the casino, you're not going to just say, let's go down to Frigo's, get a roast beef sandwich. You know, that's, that's kind of a push. Still, he says, the casino is a good neighbor in the South End. It's definitely beautified the area. It's cleaned up a lot of uh, blighted buildings. It's given people new life, new energy. He says early on, MGM bought a lot from Frigo's. We were selling quite a few gift baskets in the beginning, and I really haven't seen that in the last six months. MGM is required under its deal with the city to spend locally. In its first months, the casino spent about one and a quarter million dollars per month with Springfield businesses. One of them, a couple of miles east of Frigo's, is park cleaners. Owner Rebecca Marigian says her revenues tripled since the casino opened a year ago. She launders the casino's uniforms. We pick up anywhere from 700 to 1,000 pieces a day. Five days a week? Seven days a week. It's allowed her to buy new energy and water-efficient washers and other equipment. She's hired nine more people, mostly part-timers from the Forest Park neighborhood. And just last month... I was able to offer my staff health insurance for the first time, which is fabulous. Before the casino, Marigian said she would struggle to pay the light bill. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm Nancy Cohen. Coming up, remembering the hike that may have saved the White Mountains for future generations. But first, we'll meet a man who loved to hike in those mountains before he went to prison. We'll examine what his life was like on parole. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. One of the most important but least understood parts of our criminal justice system is parole. It's a way for people who've been convicted of crimes and served their time to be released back into the general public. It's a system that makes sense on its face. It can relieve overcrowded prisons and give people a chance for a fresh start. But as Emily Corwin found, it rarely turns out that way. She's an investigative reporter and editor for Vermont Public Radio, and she produced and reported the podcast Supervision for New Hampshire Public Radio. In it, she explores the story of one man on his first day of freedom. Emily, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Why did you start getting interested in parole? So, um... A couple of years ago, I was doing a lot of criminal justice reporting in New Hampshire for New Hampshire Public Radio, and I kept coming across this statistic at the time, which showed that you know roughly half of inmates who leave prison in New Hampshire end up going back to prison within three years. So the recidivism rate was just pretty high. And one in two is not actually so off from typical, but it just seemed high in terms of, you know, your odds of succeeding after prison. And so I got this idea, which was, you know, I wanted to try to follow someone as they go through life on parole, just to try to figure out what is it about this that's so hard. As we hear in the podcast, you went to some of these parole hearings and you met a lot of people. Tell us about the guy who you ended up profiling and and how you found him. So one of the people who was up for parole and received it was this guy, 39-year-old named Josh Lavinitz. And, you know, I I have in my notebook still, I had written Ernest in capital letters and underlined it. And then a little further down the page as I was taking notes during his hearing, I wrote good candidate. And it's because he just seemed so genuinely to want to succeed. But he also was really honest about the things that were going to be difficult for him. He talked about with the parole board, like he needs to stay away from alcohol. It really has a bad influence on his life. He talked about, you know, his need to stay on his mental health meds because when he goes off of them, things kind of spin out of control. And he had been convicted of assault against his now today ex-wife and her I think it was 13-year-old stepson, and he had spent two years in prison for that. Before we meet him in this next section, which we're going to hear from episode two of your podcast, Supervision, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about him as a person and some of his mannerisms, because that that plays a lot into the kind of nervous guy we're going to hear in just a moment. <laughs> That's right. So, so Josh, you know, you can picture he was really short, you know, maybe five foot three, five foot four, and he wore these wire rim glasses and, you know, his buzz cut. He was just full of energy and like kind of nervous energy and just really excited and also really anxious. And, you know, like he just, he kind of would make you smile, even though you you knew he'd done something really horrible to get in there. He, He was a guy who left you rooting for him. So let's pick up the story. Here's a segment from Supervision. It's a podcast by Emily Corwin and New Hampshire Public Radio. How are you feeling? Nervous. Very nervous. Excited, nervous, all the above. Josh gets out of prison on a spring morning in New Hampshire. The trees are just starting to turn green, but the sky is gray and it's raining. 
He's not dressed for the weather. He's wearing prison-issued sweatshorts and a t-shirt. Still, Josh seems immune to the dampness and the chill. You gotta bounce in your step. Oh yeah. <laughs> When's the best show up? Who's that? When's the best show up? Uh, about 7.40ish. Awesome. These are Josh's first moments as a free man in two years. His face, his walk, you can see this battle between exhilaration and apprehension. Like he's so light he could float straight into the air, except something is pulling him back down. And he keeps repeating this refrain about how he's feeling. Very excited, very nervous. Very excited. Very nervous. The bus is early, but Josh hustles across the parking lot like he's worried it's going to leave without him. I've never followed someone around on their first day on parole before. But I had an idea how that day must play out. Hitching rides, emotional reunions, maybe a really good meal. Josh's first day will be most of those things. And it'll be a lot more. Everything will go as planned until it doesn't. And getting on this bus, Josh and I have no idea what we're getting into. One Ospie as well. There you go. Thank you. Josh chooses a seat near the front and drops a clear plastic garbage bag between his feet. In it, I can see some magazines, a tube of toothpaste, and a few bottles of pills. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't sleep very good last night. I've been up since about 3.30. <laughs> yeah. I went to the bed about almost 1. What's going through your head all that time? Uh, the reality of it. Um, the, everything's sinking in. Um, them actually getting out. I wonder how my mom's doing right now. Probably the same as me. Nervous. Excited. Actually, Josh tells me, it's not just last night. He's hardly slept for days. Oh, there's Mount Shakora right there. Josh sees his favorite hike, Mount Shakorawa. He strains to see out all the windows. He points out tree stumps, a Walmart. Everything is fascinating. Oh yeah, I forgot about people in crosswalks. As we drive farther from the prison, I notice Josh's hands. He keeps furling his bus ticket into this tight little roll and then unrolling it again. A little bit of nervous energy there. Yeah, um, I fiddle around a lot. His mood is shifting. He's becoming less happy, more somber. I'm wicked anxious and nervous. I just want to jump out of my skin right now. There are so many things that must be on Josh's mind right now. He hasn't seen his friends and his family for over two years. He needs to find a job and an apartment. He needs a driver's license and a car. And besides all of that, it's still only about 9 a.m. And Josh doesn't know who'll be there to pick him up when the bus stops. Conway, a few minutes ago, uh, our next stop will be West Ossipee. West Ossipee, here I come. West Ossipee! Good luck to you, sir. Thank you. Ah, this is so nice. The bus drops Josh off an hour from home, 
we start walking toward a beat-up red pickup truck. It still has the Dodge. As we get closer to the truck, I keep expecting someone to get out and greet Josh. But nobody does. I wonder who's inside. When Josh opens up the passenger door, it's his old friend Chris McGovern. Chris gives Josh a silent once-over. He's expressionless. They don't hug or anything like that. It's a little hard to hear the very first thing Chris says to Josh, but here it is. What's up, dude? Oh, hey, up? Pale as f- You're pale as f- Chris says. Hot pale. I've been getting sun. <laughs> What's up? Hey, Chris, I'm Emily. How are you? Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, public radio. Chris is an old neighbor of Josh's. They've been good friends for years. Chris didn't visit Josh in prison, but he did send photos from hiking trips and occasionally money. He tells me to hop in the back seat. On it, among other things, is a disintegrating red rose. Cool, thank you. Don't worry about the mess. Oh, don't worry about it. It's an old rose. Don't ask me how I got there. (laughs) Chris is a master electrician. His truck is full of work gear. His helmet, some tools, a box of junior mints. I buckle up for the drive south. All right. Fucking freedom. Yeah, it's nice. Finally. So where you gotta go, Dover? Yeah. We set off driving southeast towards Dover, where Josh has to check in with his parole officer before the end of the day. It's about an hour away. To get there, we pass through Rochester, where Josh grew up and where Chris lives. It's a blue-collar town that's just beginning to see the signs of gentrification. Opioid addiction has crept into Rochester, too, and into their group of friends. Strawberry still alive? Surprised you didn't see him. <laughs> really? Strawberry is one of their pals. That dope. People are dying left and right. Josh is surprised Strawberry hasn't died from an overdose yet. And Chris is surprised Josh didn't cross paths with Strawberry in prison. Wow, what did he do? He's running like a trap house there for a while. Yeah. So the city ended up kicking him out. They didn't have any water, they didn't have any sewer. I guess the toilet was, was bounded over. You know, like, disgusting. That's brutal. Mount Shaw right there, that's a good mountain. Josh's buddy Chris is about as understated a person as I've ever met. At one point, when there's a break in the conversation, Chris mentions with his typical nonchalance, he's going to be a dad in August. So who are you having a kid with? Lisa. Lisa, Lisa? Josh's anxiety appears to be quieting. He seems relieved, even elated, to just banter with his buddy. They talk about hiking, work, women, more hiking. Things are going the way you might expect them to. And then something unexpected happens. And it's alarming. Even though I've heard what you're about to hear more times than I can count, it's still hard for me to listen to. Josh's fists punch out in front of him and his whole body starts shaking. For a moment, Chris and I catch each other's eyes through the rearview mirror, 
but Chris just keeps driving. I can't read his expression. Josh sounds like he's choking. It looks like a seizure to me, but I don't know. Josh's body collapses into his seat. He's making gurgling sounds. And then he starts breathing heavily, like he's gasping for air. I keep expecting Chris to pull over, but instead he guns the engine and passes a slower car on the left. In my mind, I keep thinking this must be their bro-y dude way of dealing with this kind of thing. And I fight the urge to say something. I'm a journalist. I think I'm not supposed to intervene. I take my cue from Chris and say nothing. Eventually, Josh opens his eyes. Cigarette? Mm. Chris offers Josh a cigarette. Josh declines. Ah, oh, thanks. No? Good for you. Good for you, Chris tells Josh. And that's it. Slowly, Josh straightens up in his seat, and they both go back to talking about climbing mountains. What presidential mountain did you climb? How is that? I can hear Josh is slurring his words, but he doesn't seem to notice. None of us mention the seizure or whatever it was. We just continue to the parole office like nothing happened. Okay. Uh, any metal objects on you at all? Keys, watch, wallet, okay. okay, come on through. Parole downstairs. The office is in the basement of the courthouse the same courthouse where Josh was charged and pleaded guilty to assault against his wife and stepson three years ago. These stairs are pretty familiar. The basement office has one of those white noise machines, for privacy, I guess. There's a plexiglass window with a slot for papers. Hi, um, I just got out of prison, and I'm here to check in with uh, Greg Margin. Okay, The receptionist hands Josh this huge stack of documents he needs to fill out, initial and sign. There is an incredibly long list of rules he has to abide by. He promises to comply with his parole officer. I will diligently seek and maintain lawful employment. He promises to pay attorney's fees, parole fees, restitution. He promises not to associate with anyone with a criminal record unless his parole officer says it's okay. Obey all laws and be arrest-free. He promises not to even be in the presence of drugs. And, Josh tells me, the judge instructed him not to consume any alcohol, that he can be sent back to prison if he drinks. I will submit to reasonable searches of my person, property, possessions. Eventually, the door opens, and Josh goes inside to meet his parole officer. Josh? Come on. 20 minutes later, he comes out, and he just looks smaller. It feels much later than 11. I'm, like, emotionally beat. Is there something about, like, meeting the parole officer that, like... Yeah, I'm just in for a long ride. (laughs) That's from the podcast Supervision by New Hampshire Public Radio. The reporter and producer of that podcast, Emily Corwin, is here. Uh, She's an investigative reporter now for Vermont Public Radio. I'm wondering how this project, Emily, has changed your outlook on the parole system. As we just heard Josh say, he doesn't think it's going to be easy now that he's out of jail. 
Yeah, I guess really the big takeaway for me from working on this project was to understand just how many things you're up against as you're trying to get back on your feet. Josh was really struggling with just basic things like how is he going to get an apartment and get a job if he doesn't have a car? And how is he going to get a car if he can't afford to do the alcohol classes he needs to get his license back? And sort of these circular problems that made it really difficult for him to create stability. That, at the end of the day, is what seemed to make getting out of prison and living on parole so difficult. What can you tell us about the seizure that he had and what caused it, how that affected him moving forward? So this was just one of the strangest and most difficult days of reporting in my you know, career. He had two seizures the, the day he got out of prison, and I was there for them. And it turned out I learned he had never had seizures before, and everyone was baffled by them. And that, I guess, it, it set the stage for one more unexpected hurdle that he was going to have to figure out how to deal with as a grown-up, as an adult living on his own, out in the world, after two years in prison. What happened to Josh? So Josh had three really up and down months out of prison. He got to do a lot of hiking, which he really loved. Um, He had some moderate success finding work. And then, you know, very unexpectedly, he, he died. He had a sort of alcohol-related accident about which there's really not a lot of information. And it, it was really tragic and unexpected and, um, you know, put the story on hold for a couple years, honestly, while we figured out how we were going to tell his story now. I was working with you uh, as a reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio when you were telling this story. And I remember you telling me about uh, this guy that you were following and how he died. And as I listened to your podcast that you did some time later, I could tell in your voice that it was hard for you to tell this story. What was it like for you as a reporter telling telling this story this way? <laughs> it, it was really hard. Um, it was hard for a number of reasons. One is just that, you know, I really cared about this guy and we spent a lot of time together and I really wanted him to succeed. And I really wanted to see him sort of through the project that we were working on. And so there was just the the normal grief that's associated with losing someone who you know and care about. And then on top of that, it was just like an unbelievable challenge, honestly, to figure out how to tell his story. What right did I have coming in and telling the story of someone who had trusted me with some, you know, really intense moments in their life, but then wasn't there anymore to participate in bringing the project to a close? And how do I weave my own experience with him in or leave it out of telling his story was a big question. And I felt like I had to do it with a lot of care and had a lot of assistance from the really, really smart people at New Hampshire Public Radio I was working with in sort of getting that balance right. Supervision is a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. Emily Corwin is the producer and host. She's now an investigative reporter and editor at Vermont Public Radio. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, John.
Heather Schoenfeld's been studying the prison and parole system for years. She's an associate professor of sociology at Boston University. I asked her how common Josh's story is. Unfortunately, um, his story is is pretty typical and increasingly so. Um, we know that the admissions to prison from rural areas are actually rising while um, admissions from urban areas are declining. And so the lower the population center, the fewer the services, social services, uh, drug and alcohol treatment, jobs, uh, public transportation, those things are going to be harder to find. There seems to be an awful lot of rules, no no alcohol, no drugs, no contact with certain individuals. That's right. And, and there are rules that seem impossible for almost anyone to, to abide by, let alone people who have very few other choices. Is this one of the systemic problems, Heather, that we might need to, to fix in the system? It is. The system is set up to send people back to prison. Unfortunately... Over the last 30 years or so, um, supervision in the community has become just that, supervision, and not reentry assistance. And so the attitude has been more likely to be about how do we catch a person when they mess up um, rather than how do we keep people out of the system? How do we really help them um, desist from crime? We did hear something in the Supervision podcast that something does change you, even if you're in for a couple of years in prison, not a very long sentence. There's something that will change the way you think, the way you see the world, the way you interact with people. Has that been your experience? Well, there's two ways to, to look at that. Um, so one is, you know, if you keep people in prison for a very long time, uh, they're not the same person they were when they committed the crime, and in a positive way, right? In a way that's much less likely to make rash decisions. Um, on the other hand, the socialization process in prison, particularly in male prisons, is pretty much a culture of, I'm going to stick to myself, I'm going to do my time, um, I'm going to be wary of the folks around me. And those are not the skills one needs when they get out of prison and really need to open themselves up to network, to trust people. The very skills that they're learning in prison to survive are the opposite of the skills that they're going to need once they're out. Heather Schoenfeld, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn a lot more about the parole system by listening to Supervision. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, just like you can for our little podcast. Coming up, those white mountains that parolee Josh Lavinitz used to hike weren't always so bucolic. We'll trace the path of the women who may have just saved them. Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. We're going to end our show with a bit of history. 
Back in 1902, two middle-aged women organized a hiking trip through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At the time, the mountains were under threat from logging and fires. Waitley, Massachusetts botanist Allison Bell credits the trip with preserving the White Mountains for decades to come. She recently invited New England Public Radio's Karen Brown to retrace parts of that century-old journey. We have managed to land on what must be the most gorgeous, friendly Mount Washington day in the history of the world. You know, it's Allison Bell has been up Mount Washington, the tallest peak in New England, a couple hundred times. She's agreed to meet me at the bottom, 2,000 feet above sea level, in a spot called Pinkham Notch. Most of the time, especially as you go up the mountain, you can expect rain, cold, fog, and a whole lot of wind. We pile into her wife Leslie's pickup truck to make the eight-mile trek up the mountain's toll road. Three people today. Three people today. The road was built a century and a half ago, originally for horse carriages full of tourists. This site, this flat place here, is where there was a building called the Halfway House. It was for the teams of horses to switch out after they'd done half the climb, and then they'd send a fresh team up and vice versa. Belle is a graphic designer by day, naturalist by weekend. She often leads tours of the alpine flower gardens in the White Mountains. So if you look out the window now, we are in northern hardwood forest. We've got sugar maples and beeches and yellow birches, a few hemlocks. She's written field guides for the Appalachian Mountain Club and recently co-wrote the book Glorious Mountain Days with Maida Goodwin about a camping trip through this terrain 117 years ago. That the 1902 trek was organized by two unmarried women over 40, Hattie Freeman and Emma Cummings, made it especially unusual for that era. And if you can imagine yourself here before there were trails and you're trying to go that way, Karen, that's going to be a tough walk. It's actually a tough drive for me, since I'm afraid of heights, a fact Belle likes to tease me about. Okay, you can look now. Honest, we're in the flat place. There's a place where cars stop at the top? Or drive right off the edge if you don't stop. Okay, that's not funny. (laughs) Clearly, I would have been no match for the intrepid hikers of 1902, long before backwoods recreation went mainstream. Hattie Freeman was a wealthy, conservation-minded woman. Emma Cummings was her frequent hiking companion. For this week-long trip, they took Freeman's nephew, her cousin, and a professional guide. When Hattie and Emma and their crew started out, they started in Randolph, which is on the opposite side of this mountain range. We don't have time to retrace their exact steps, but Bell does point out a few key stops they made along the way. This Krumholtz zone, right at the top of the forest before we enter into the Arctic Alpine zone, was a place that Hattie and Emma were particularly interested in seeing because they had long wanted to see a winter wren. At night, they stayed in wooden shelters and a hotel, now long gone, at the top of Mount Washington, which is known for some of the most extreme weather in the world. You can see how exposed this is. The prevailing wind is coming exactly the way it is right now from the west. So all the storms track in this way. And this was about a century before you could check your weather app for the forecast. So after waiting out a thunderstorm in the hotel, the hikers had to use the brand new telephone line installed at the summit and call a building far below. And get someone to literally look out the window at the mountain and see what the clouds were doing. Bell's book includes letters Freeman wrote during the trip and her photographs. Looking at them now, the attire is nothing like the sleek outdoor gear of today. 
The women are wearing formal-looking brimmed hats, laced-up leather shoes, long-sleeved button-up shirts, and thick, long skirts, though Bell says those were considered downright revolutionary for the time. Because they didn't hit the ground. They came up off the ground three or four inches. Those were the short skirts. If you're climbing through this stuff right here, you're less likely to tear them. She suspects they hiked up their skirts when no one was looking and probably skipped the corsets. But Bell says the fact that these women were doing the kind of rugged activity mostly reserved for men is only part of the story. The greater significance of it is that Hattie and Emma and their companions were keenly aware of the fact that the forests on at least that side of the northern presidential range were in imminent peril. Bell says the state had sold large tracts of land to logging companies, which were clear-cutting to make paper. The logging was also destroying hiking trails, leaving waste and brush all over, and making the land vulnerable to devastating fires. Hattie and Emma decided they really had to try to do whatever they could to get people motivated to help preserve the White Mountains. And remember, in 1902, these are women who had no vote. Instead, when they got back, they held public meetings and published letters and photographs from the trip, making the case that tourism is a more sustainable industry than logging. Freeman also had friends with political influence, and within a few years, they helped get federal legislation passed that created the White Mountain National Forest. But Bell says Freeman could scarcely have predicted all the environmental threats that exist today. After all, logging is visible and obvious. That was the easier thing to kind of wrap your head around. Uh, Things like climate change and even invasive plants, it's more insidious, silent, even abstract kind of problems. Bell is herself an avid conservationist who imagines Freeman and Cummings would have joined many environmental causes today. There's a controversial proposal to build a new hotel at the top of Mount Washington. And there's the threat of invasive plant species tracked into the White Mountains from travelers and vehicles. For example, a few years ago, Bell organized a group of volunteers to pull out a patch of dandelions. If Hattie Freeman were alive today, Bell says... She would have been out there helping us pull dandelions, for sure. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. More than 20 years before that historic hike, an anthropologist visited Callis, Maine, to record the songs, the words, and the stories of members of the Passamaquoddy tribe. For years, these field recordings, some of the oldest in the world, were largely hidden from public view. But more than a century later, those recordings have been digitally enhanced and shared with the tribe. As Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg reports, the Passamaquoddy are now working to interpret and present them. Let's go with 24. How about that? I'm just picking that out of randomly. Dwayne Toma sits at his kitchen table in Perry, Maine, and pulls up an audio file on his computer. When he hits play, his speakers emit a scratchy, slightly garbled recording. Through the white noise, Toma scratches out the words he hears, rewinding every few seconds. Word by word, Toma is attempting to transcribe and translate dozens of these old recordings, some of which are being heard for the first time in more than a century. I really, uh, I wept hearing their voices, knowing that I'm probably, probably one of the last fluent speakers on the reservation, and that we're still continuing uh, this process to be able to revitalize our language and to be able to bring it uh, back to life again, so to speak, and give it some attention that it really deserves. 
But to understand the story behind these recordings and their significance, you've got to go back to the year 1890 and an anthropologist named Walter Jesse Fuchs. He was on a quest of documenting tribes across North America. Passamaquoddy Tribal Historic Preservation Officer Donald Soctoma says before he embarked on his journey, Fuchs borrowed an early audio recording device, a phonograph from Thomas Edison that recorded sounds on large wax cylinders, about three minutes at a time. So this was the first time they take this big piece of equipment and modernize it so he could use it outside. In March of 1890, Fuchs went to Calais, phonograph in hand, and met with three representatives for the Passamaquoddy tribe. Um, the three spokesmen for the tribe sang songs, told stories, and did basic things like pronunciation of words and numbers and days. Fuchs recorded more than 30 cylinders in total, but for decades the recordings were forgotten by many. Historians say Fuchs's family likely held on to them for a time, and they eventually ended up at Boston's Peabody Museum. Tribal members didn't hear the recordings again until the 1970s and 80s, when the Library of Congress reached out to them. It was part of an effort to catalog thousands of the wax cylinders and share them with tribes. A Passamaquoddy tribal elder received a cassette of the recordings, but at that point they were scratchy and difficult to understand. Then, about a decade ago, a similar effort was attempted using digital technology. Guha Shankar, a folklife specialist at the library's American Folklife Center, says the 1890 Passamaquoddy recordings were some of the first that the library wanted to restore. Uh, historically, they're the oldest materials that we have in our archives. In 2013, Passamaquoddy Tribal Historic Preservation Officer Donald Soctoma met with the agency. And then I told them that one of the things I'd like to do is develop culturally based website where the tribe controls its stories, its language, without any outside forces trying to take it over or commercialize it. Over the next few years, the tribe agreed to partner with the library and other institutions on the project. The library would restore the recordings, and from there, the Passamaquoddy would decide the next steps. Here's here's our SR-12, which is a salutation song. Since last year, the tribe's youngest fluent Passamaquoddy speaker, Dwayne Toma, has spent hours painstakingly transcribing and interpreting each cylinder. He notes each word, story, and musical attribute, even how the language has morphed and changed over 130 years. The work is then reviewed by a panel of other fluent Passamaquoddy speakers. Some finished pieces have been added to a curated digital website kept by the tribe. After efforts to eradicate Native American culture and language, Thomas says this project is critical for passing Passamaquoddy culture to future generations. And I think that's really what the goal is really, is to influence the children because they are really the key to um, uh, passing this language on and for them to continue it. So I think it needs to stem from them. There's still a lot of work ahead. While several cylinders have been reviewed, more than 20 remain. But already, the songs and stories have begun to weave their way back into tribal events. Toma has sung several of them in public. His daughter also joined him for a song last year at an annual celebration. 
The year before, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer Donald Soctoma played a song from the wax cylinder recordings to a group of young children at the tribe's language immersion school. He says one of the teachers joined in. She'd learned a version of the song from her grandmother. And then, a month later, Soctoma visited again. I said, I'm going to play it again. And the teacher said, no, you don't have to play it. Just listen to the kids. So those kids around that table were singing the song. I said, wow. Uh, I just had a big smile on my face. I don't smile much, so my heart was smiling. My face was. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. You can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England as well. Next is produced this week by Carolyn McCusker and Carmen Baskoff. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Jonathan McNichol, Jack Rodolico, Erica Janik, and Nick Capadisi. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio.